Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom and State. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347 324 Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us here on the Gift of Freedom. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host. Tonight, I have a very strong program for you. Joining me later will be Professor Jean Libby. Hello? Will be uh, Professor Jean Libby, who's going to talk to us about the relationship between John Brown, the abolitionist, and African-American pioneers in San Jose, California. And among other topics that we'll be getting to, uh, we'll be talking about the establishment of the AM Zion Church in New York City, uh, National Historical Site, establishment of the first secondary school, uh, Episcopal churches in California, etc. Good evening, Professor Libby. Hello, Preston. How are you this evening? I'm good. Glad you could join us. And I think we may have some other guests joining us later. Uh, yes, they're, uh, that, uh, they're, they're here now. I'll be glad to introduce them uh, okay. as, 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 as we move along. Okay. Are you um, are you on a landline or speakerphone? I'm, I'm, I'm on a landline, and we've got a speakerphone going because one of my extensions is not... Uh, hooking up. So, uh, is this is this okay? Can you hear me all right? I can hear you okay now. You were cutting out there for a minute. But tell all us, right. Professor, how did you, how did you uh, discover this uh, link between the abolitionist John Brown and African Americans in California? Well, that's a very uh, interesting question. Uh, I wonder if Mary Ellen Pleasant, that name. Rings a bell with you, Mary Ellen Pleasant, the Gold Rush abolitionist, who was very wealthy and uh, very controversial as well. Um, she brought gold to John Brown, and uh, she met with him in Canada, and she brought it from African Americans in San Francisco. She's known as the mother of civil rights <clears throat> in California, and there's a scholar named uh, Sushil Bill. Uh, who's a classical musician and uh, was a lecturer at Berkeley, and she has uh, spent about 20 years and actually documented this whole thing, which was very much poo-pooed by historians. Okay, Uh, Professor, let me interrupt for a moment. Uh, Can you kind of back up from the speakerphone there a bit? And can you repeat the name of the lady uh, that brought the gold to uh, John Brown? Yes, she brought the uh, she she brought the gold to John Brown and met with what him in name? Canada. Her name what? was Mary Ellen Pleasant. Mary Ellen Pleasant. Okay, thank you. In Gold Rush, California, and so uh, uh, so Doctor Bibbs here uh, out in California documented that yes, this actually happened. Uh, and that uh, what historians had poo-pooed and said, oh, no, because she's controversial and uh, was also very wealthy. Uh, you know, she wasn't considered the proper sort to be uh, to be an abolitionist. But I found that uh, in researching more, uh, when I learned about Reverend Peter Williams Cassie and his wife, uh, found that they're very definitely involved with the abolitionists in San Francisco, including those who uh, left 
uh, and went to Canada and other places after the Archie rescue in 1858. Now, uh, Reverend Catsey, he was a person of color? Yes, he was. He was a... um, uh, But to tell you more about him, I'd like to introduce you to Reverend Jerry Drino, who has been... uh, He is a, a, a minister... Uh, an Episcopal minister, and he has a lot of experience working uh, with youth uh, in Harlem in the Bronx and uh, at St. Augustine's Episcopal Church in Oakland, where the Black Panther movement would later hold their meetings. Uh, And he is the person who has been uh, studying the life and history of the Reverend Peter Williams Cassie, Anna Besant Cassie, his wife, and Henrietta Lockwood, his mother-in-law, who lived with them in San Jose, California. So if I may introduce you, this is uh, Reverend Jerry Drino. Yes, good evening, Preston. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your program. Um, Peter Williams Cassie is one of those... um, significant people that when you you look at his life and that of his wife and mother-in-law, you realize the power that single individuals can have when they work in community. And Peter was a fourth-generation free African-American. His great-grandfather had purchased his freedom from the Methodist church that owned him in Manhattan in 1783 and purchased the freedom of his wife and children. Excuse me, Reverend. Excuse yeah. me, Reverend. You said he was owned by the Methodist Church? Yes, right, in Manhattan. In Manhattan? Right. Interesting. Okay, and thank you. He, um, he went on to found the first um, African-American um, uh Episcopal Methodist Church uh, in uh, Manhattan that was related to the church that had owned him. And his son um, became an Episcopalian and was the first black to be ordained in the uh, uh, Episcopal Church in New York and founded St. Philip's, which now is in Harlem. Um, But he was um, he was similar to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in that in his 20s, he delivered um, a major speech uh, on abolition um, in, uh, in New York and was, from that point on, uh, the lightning rod for much of the abolitionist movement in, in uh, the, the state and obviously connected to the whole movement on the the East Coast. His daughter, Amy, married Joseph Cassie, who, uh, and the two of them were part of the the leading abolitionist group in Philadelphia, uh, centering out of St. Thomas African Episcopal Church, uh, where the first Episcopal priest uh, African-American priest Absalom Jones had founded and was the rector. And so their son, Peter Williams, um, was raised in um, a crucible of abolitionist, um, uh, very educational, very educational-oriented, uh, received a very classical education, and when his father died and his mother remarried um, an abolitionist who um, was uh, a leader in the, in New England, Peter, as a 23-year-old, um, immigrated to uh, California, um, possibly to find his fortune. But in fact, when he got here, there were um, several thousand slaves in California because even though it had been brought into the Union as a free state, um, they, the interpretation of that by the, the, the governor and the legislature was that if you had arrived with slaves from the South, 
uh, we weren't going to uh, push you to um, to give them up. And so until 1858 with the, the Archie Lee case, um, slaves were a part of um, the agricultural and the domestic life of, of the cities. And Peter found a group of other abolitionists and as a young man worked to uh, seek their freedom and um, was a part of the first um, Congress of Colored Citizens of California in 1855 in San Francisco. Um, In 1860, he immigrates to uh, San Jose and finds um, a, a very substantial black middle class of um, merchants, of um, there was uh, newspapers, uh, there was uh, hope that a school could be built. Um, these were were people that um, that were making um, a place in in a community that was noted not to be segregated, but to be filled with um, a great deal of diversity, and a lot having to do with the immigrants that had come from overseas to uh, find their fortune in the gold country. Mm-hmm. So he established, uh, he and his wife uh, established a school for um, colored children and that included not only African Americans, but uh, Latinos and Chinese who were not allowed to go to public school and uh that was called St. Philip's Mission and Academy and it was related to what is now the Episcopal Cathedral in San Jose Trinity and um they it became a boarding school they had um students from uh, as far as the way as Portland in the north and uh Panama in uh the south and it was the first school for um African Americans in California in uh, 1866 it, be, it they increased it to be um a secondary school and um many of the earliest um black leaders in California sent their children to um be a part of that school so that gives you kind of a sweep of um of their life together and um, the significance of this. In 1875, the state uh, Supreme Court ordered all schools to be integrated and therefore the need for um, a separate school for African-American children was no longer needed. And uh, so they moved forward um, to disband the school and Peter went on to be the first Episcopal a minister in uh, North Carolina, where he um, was a part of uh, a school for African American children in New Bern, and then eventually was called to Florida, where he founded three churches and died there in eighteen in nineteen seventeen. Okay, so he never got back to California. No, he didn't. His uh, their only daughter um, married the first um, uh, African American graduate of Yale and uh, settled in Connecticut, and so that what family. Was what was the uh, the Yale graduate's name? Um, that I can't. It, right off the top of my head, I can't. I can't uh, recall. Um, but he. Um, they they lived there. He, Peter married a second time in North Carolina, and that line of the family, I'm in touch with um, the family that lives actually in Trenton um, and still are members at St. Uh, Thomas in Philadelphia. And um, we're working um, together um, with them since they have the archives to see how we can move forward um, the memory of Peter and Anna and Henrietta into uh, what we call the calendar of saints in the Episcopal Church, which will be um, convening in a general convention next 
year in Salt Lake City, and hopefully um, they will be remembered on their death dates um, for all Episcopalians in the American Church. Now, you mentioned Henrietta. That was his mother-in-law, Henrietta Lockwood. Yes. And before he got to Florida, did they have a stint there in the uh, state of Oregon, Portland, Oregon, he, his wife, and his mother-in-law? They they more than likely uh, fled, um, as most um, blacks did in the, the late 1850s, because of the Dred Scott case, um, having um, denied citizenship, they were afraid that when Archie Lee um, pleaded his case that that he had been brought as a slave to California as a youth, but uh, had um, claimed that California, being a free state, he could no longer be bound. And they, most blacks in California felt that this was going to go the way of the Dred Scott case, and so they um, they left um, and uh, not only went to Oregon and Washington, many of them went to Canada. Um, the Archie Lee case uh, came down in favor of Lee, and so he was declared free, and that was then the impetus for them to return probably in late 1860, because the census of 1860 has them living in Portland, but they were certainly in California in the late 1860s because Peter is a signator of the founding of the Episcopal Church in San Jose in 1861, which is remarkable to... um, have a congregation that that was that inclusive that would um, have a, uh, a a black family as a part of the Episcopal Church, which tended to be, you know, with the the doctors and judges and and uh, mayors of the city. And so it it you know it's a remarkable story of a very um, open congregation. And you said you were in contact with descendants. From his second marriage, yes, and right. They will be involved in the commemoration. Yes, yes, and we we have the diocese of California, El Camino Real, which is Central California, Los Angeles, uh, North Carolina, and uh, 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 Florida, all. Um, um, moving the resolution to go to our general convention um, when representatives from all the, the judicatories come together. So is this commemoration uh, as holy men and women, is that right. commemoration to sainthood in the Catholic Church? Uh, it- no, it's it, it, it's the same. Um, it's It's not... As rigorous, um, you know, we're not asking for proof of miracles. Uh, these the, the, the saints historically were held up to be examples of um, the Christian faith and um, and life. And so, in the Episcopal Church, um, this this book called Holy Women and Holy Men is uh, set aside for us to commemorate, you know, the local heroes of faith, which, you know, these three are really um, worthy of being commemorated. Okay. Now, who was Charles Lennox Redmond? That was Amy um, uh, Cassie's uh, second uh, husband. Can, can I uh, chime in on that You can bit? certainly Jordan do that. Jordan, Jerry? Uh, this is how um, connecting with John Brown is that uh, uh, Amy Cassie kept a, an autograph book at her home in Philadelphia. And this autograph book is signed by all the prominent abolitionists of the time, William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass. All these people came through her home uh, they were associated with Robert Purvis and with uh, with James Fortin. Uh, they were all part of this black elite in Philadelphia. Now, when when uh, Joseph Cassie died in 1848 and she remarried, 
it was to Charles Lennox Remond in Massachusetts. And he was the most famous uh, abolitionist, black abolitionist, outside of Frederick Douglass. And when uh, she moved the family, uh, they were still, they were in their, old, the children, she had four children, and they were all in their, their older years. She also uh, brought in a ward who had been orphaned, and that was Charlotte Fortin who would later become an author and teacher uh, in, the, in the Sea Islands and uh, quite famous herself. And so what we know about uh, Mrs. Cassie and Mrs. Cassie Remond is through Charlotte Fortin's diary. Uh, and it's just, just fascinating. Uh, and how she becomes instilled with the idea that she must contribute to the freedom of her people, that she must do this, and that this is something that those who are privileged uh, are required to do as part of their lives. It's their, it's their persona. And so Charlotte's writing about this uh, brings to life uh, very much uh, Mrs. Cassie Remond and one of her sons, uh, becomes an accountant for William Whipper, who is directly involved with John Brown in 1858. And uh, uh, another of, of her sons uh, is involved with someone else who's involved with John Brown. Remond himself knows Brown, and there's a written invitation from John Brown to his convention to Charles Remond that's uh, at auction right now in the art houses for several thousand dollars. Wow. What about yeah, the so book the, you mentioned, that autographed book? Is it oh, still around book. somewhere? Yes. Oh, this is, this is what's wonderful. You know, the other book that I told you about uh, that I mentioned that I wanted to talk about is called A Fragile Freedom, and it's about African-American women in the antebellum South. And Thank you. And so uh, African-American women and emancipation in the antebellum city and that's by Erica Armstrong Dunbar. And so uh, Amy Cassie Remond's autograph book went to the Library of Philadelphia. And, mm. uh, and so she studied it there, and then she wrote a book about the book and about their, and, and about their lives. And what is the, uh, what's specifically in that book, African American, uh, subtitled African American Women in the Edelbellum South? Can you give us uh, an insight into a character or two in that book that she highlights? Yes. Let's see. Um, she talks about how the uh, they are creating black Philadelphia and how they're uh, uh, active in the uh, anti-slavery societies of both whites and Okay, I believe you've cut off. Are you still there? Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. No problem. And uh, so there's. Uh, she also has uh, poems uh, that are there uh, uh, by the women uh, in their in their books. But because uh, Amy's book is so wonderful and so complete. She goes into a great deal of, of detail about it and about their lives and the people who are coming into their homes, like Richard Allen. You know, I mean, it's just, it is uh, it is the creation of this society, and uh, as usual, women do it. Okay, I believe you cut out again. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. If you have the book there, could you read uh, one of the short poems for us? Wow. Okay. Let me find one a poem. One of your favorites. Find a poem there and read it for the uh, for the listeners. All and right. while you're looking, go ahead. Okay. While I'm looking, what would you like? Okay. Here's some poems right here. <laughs> okay. Here's one. And uh, this is about 
uh, it's a, this is an unsigned poem, and it's called The Fair Sex, and it describes the weakness of women. And when Eve brought woe to all mankind, old Ma- Adam called her woman. But when she wooed with love so kind, he then pronounced her woman. But now with folly and with pride, their husbands keenly trimming, the ladies are so full of whims, people call them women. Okay. There's, and a, there's a lot of nice, light, and domestic kinds of things uh, in, in the poetry. There's also some illustrations. Uh, there's a butterfly saying, a token of my of love from me to thee. And it's a watercolor uh, to Amy Cassie from Sarah Maps Douglas that's been made as a, a token of her affection. And, of course, Amy puts this in her book, and, and now it's, it's preserved. So it's re- very much the story of friendships uh, and uh, in among African-American women, particularly in, in Philadelphia. It's a, it's a lovely book. Okay, and you said that's up for auction now. That's what? The book is. What was up for auction? Oh, what's up for auction is yeah. a signed invitation from oh, John yeah, Brown. Invitation. Yeah. yeah, to Charles Remond. Wow. And and I think it's been uh uh I I saw this about 20 years ago and it was at a university. I think it's been removed from the university. And it's up for auction. Okay. I want to remind our listeners that if they have a question or comment, they can call it in at 347-324-5444. And I'm speaking with Professor Jean Liddy and Reverend Jerry Drino relative to African Americans in and around San Jose, California, and also the Silicon Valley there in California. Now, you mentioned that second book. Um, was that the book by Herbert Ruffin? Yes. Yes, and I'd also like to uh, introduce you to uh, another guest I have here who's uh, uh, who's involved in the uh, Episcopal Church uh, and an editor of the Episcopal Diocese uh, newsletter in in California, and he's right, also by all means. yes. Uh, uh, but I'll I'll say the name of the book for you first because it's this book that has brought us together, among other things. And uh, uh, so the book is by Professor Herbert Ruffin of Syracuse University, and it's called Uninvited Neighbors: um, African Americans in Silicon Valley from 1860 to 1990. And so that's uh, that is one of the books that I wanted to talk about, as as well as this uh, fragile freedom. And the person I'd like to introduce you to is Lovey Spencer, and uh, he was born here in uh, in the San Jose area, uh, and he was his parents were sharecroppers in Indianola, Mississippi, and they came here at the time of World War II and settled and uh, and started to raise their family here. And uh, Lovey had a temporary job in the Ambassador Hotel in the Coconut Grove down in Los Angeles. And he used that as a stepping stone to the Hilton Hotels. And then he became uh, their personnel director and uh, also did a lot of training. And uh, since his... Uh, since his retirement as human resources director uh, there in the hotel world, uh, he's become much more active in uh, in the Episcopal Diocese and the Episcopal Church and in finding uh, his own muse in that regard. And, that, and I'd just like to introduce you to Lovey Spencer and let him tell you about what he's thinking about. Very great. Hi, Welcome Kristen. to the program. 
Thank you so much. And I want to clarify a little bit. I was born, too, in Indianola, Mississippi. Don't know much about it. I was a toddler when we came here to uh, uh, to the Silicon Valley area, but uh, very much hold uh, uh, Indianola, the home of B.B. King, where my father and he knew each other. So there is a, a great history of, uh, of that time in, in our family. Preston, it's it's such a wonderful treat to speak to you and to be in Professor Libby's home along with uh, with Father uh, Jerry. Uh, we've only known each other for a very short time, even though I've been an Episcopalian for 30 years. Uh, we discovered each other uh, when, as an editor, I came across Father Cassie's name. Um, and doing some research, and was aware of him. At the time, I was living up in the Sonoma wine country, and uh, but our family was still involved down in the uh, uh, in San Jose, and I knew where Trinity Cathedral was, and it was just an awesome story to me that a, a man of color more than 150 years ago, was actively involved in work and uh, was actually the first ordained uh, black minister west of the Mississippi. So, of course, he had a tremendous interest uh, to me. And uh, I being came, just kind of held it in the back of my mind. And uh, I have recently relocated to our ancestral home here in San Jose. And that's how I became uh, more involved locally with this church and that the paths of Father uh, uh, Jerry and, uh, and uh, Jane and I crossed. I was on the 4th of July, and I was out in a park, and I was having a conversation with a colleague who was a local politician. Uh, his name was Don Galliardi. Don is mentioned in Herbert Ruffin's book uh, for his research in history. Uh, his was relating to Tommy Smith and uh, John Carlos, the Olympians, who went to San Jose State, and uh, Don was active in uh, uh, keeping their home, which was near the campus, as a historical monument. And uh, that's how we, the conversation started talking about famous people who, black people of color, that had lived in San Jose. And I mentioned uh, Father Cassie to uh, uh, Don, and then the whole thing started to roll into place in that uh, Professor Libby just happened to have a uh, an exhibit uh, that included uh, Father Cassie uh, at the Martin Luther King Library on the campus at San Jose State, and uh, I, of course, became even more excited. So I contacted the uh, the uh, uh, the church and found that there was going to be a commemorative services at the historic grave site. So Professor uh, Libby and uh, uh, Father uh, Jerry and I actually met at the grave site in a commemorative services that they've been carrying on for uh, for a number of years. So you can you can imagine my excitement to find out that the uh, the celebration of their lives and the movement forward of getting them uh, uh, memorialized in our church was uh, was rather exciting. Yeah, I should say so. Um, can you guys talk to us a little bit more about the? Uh, details of the Herbert Ruffin book, Uninvited Neighbors, African Americans in Silicon Valley, 1860 to 1990. It covers a lot sure. of territory. Uh, Professor uh, Lemon Jean is coming to her phone. All right. And, yes. Uh, okay. Yes. What, what is the question? I'm sorry. Oh, is this uh, some more details uh, about the Herbert Ruffin book, Uninvited Neighbors? Yes. Uh, a few of the particular details. Maybe read an interesting passage for our listeners. Um, unfortunately, we forgot to bring the book, and so I okay. can't I can't read you a passage, but I can tell you what was most meaningful to me, um, and uh, I'll preface that with the way that I met him. 
he um, uh, he asked uh, to interview me because I had been active in the civil rights movement in the NAACP and Corps uh, here in the area in the 1960s. And so um, we did that, you know, a couple years ago. And then he came over to uh, San Jose State when I was putting up this exhibit and just the very morning that I put the exhibit up because he was looking for me. He had just published the book. It was published by the University of Oklahoma Press. And uh, so I come up the elevator carrying the bags of the artifacts that are going into the into the cases, and there he is. So he gave uh, the keynote talk at the reception we were having that day. Everything is completely impromptu, and that's the way we are in California, as you as you might know. And mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I did send a picture along of him uh, talking about his book and talking about uh, San Jose in several periods of time. He talks about uh, the civil rights movement. He talks about... Uh, uh, as Lovey has described about the uh, the sports, uh, and that's going to be his next book is going to be about Speed City, and uh, so. Uh, but I was particularly moved in this book uh, about the 1870 protest in San Jose that uh, that Reverend Peter Williams Cassie is involved in because African Americans aren't allowed to register to vote. Can you imagine that? This is San Jose, yeah. California, 1870, and and uh, they've got some... Uh, California's got a whole bunch of stuff on their, in their constitution that was racially racial segregation in schools, and it included, oh, no, they can't vote, they can't testify in court. And so what, what Professor Ruffin found is that the white editor of the San Jose Mercury, who's an abolitionist coming out of Syracuse, New York, has uh, bonded and banded with the African Americans in San Jose, so they actually make a protest at the courthouse, and they are turned away on the first day. And then the second day, though, they come and uh, the registrar has decided that they can vote. And so this editor, this, now this is a, a white editor of the San Jose Mercury, is instrumental in getting the right to testify in court uh, applied to African Americans and all persons of color. And this is in the 1870s. This is after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And this would be for all people of color, including the Latinos. Including the Latinos and including what's going to begin happening uh, is there's going to be a great Asian migration, and -hmm. they're going to be left out of a lot of things too, but they're going to have this base of of, uh, rights as soon as they have citizenship rights. And so that's you know then they can uh, they can have the right to testify in court. Uh, so this is and when I talked to him, he said he said why don't you find out more about this editor? Uh, his name is uh, Jerome James Emmon. And yeah, I'd like I'd like to do that. I'd like to find out more about this uh, this abolitionist crusader who uh, who. Uh, helps out the uh, African-Americans in San Jose and tries to make things better for everybody. Now, and these uh, individuals in uh, San Jose, California, Silicon Valley, et cetera, uh, prior to the Civil War was also part of the Underground Railroad. And um, so coming up out of the South, uh, are you familiar with the stops along the way? And when they got to California, did they stay there or did they move on across the border up into, I guess, Alaska, maybe, Washington State. Where did that Where did that train end? Did it end in California? Well, I, I think we're also talking about what starts in California, uh, because what's happened is, uh, is that slaveholders have brought slaves to California, and I believe you said... Uh, uh, there were about 3,000, or was it 5,000? 5,000 by 1855. 
5,000 slaves in California. And so it is they who are uh, taking their leave as best they can and as soon as they can and being aided by uh, by people in San Jose. Uh, In fact, the first recorded uh, fugitive case of being helped is in 1850 in San Jose, uh, and that's when uh, someone is uh, is apprehended by the law, and uh, uh, there's a, a slaveholder who says, he's mine, I'm going to take him back, and uh, all the people around town, uh, especially the Latinos, are saying, no, you're not, and they're saying it very roughly, and uh, the slaveholder gets out of there. Okay, so yeah, I got it now. The Underground Railroad was coming out of California. Gene, it's Lovey Spencer. Could I interrupt you for just one second? I was amazed at your reaction that there were 5,000 slaves here in California. You can imagine as being a product of the education system here in California, I was aghast. I had no idea where the Cassie's gravesite is at this historic uh, uh, cemetery. There are other abolitionists buried around them. And it was an amazing thing. I was very similar to your reaction in saying, why was there a need for abolitionists in California? And I think it fits in with what uh, Professor Libby and what uh, Father Jerry are doing, is clarifying the need for truth-telling, is that we have a responsibility to discover this truth and to get it told and to celebrate it. And then from that, we can build reconciliation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that was uh, that's an eye-opener there in terms of the number of slaves that were brought into the state. And I would imagine that was because of the gold rush at that time, that uh, a lot of the slavers needed uh, labor when they got there. No, b- believe it or not, it was the same culture that had bought uh, slavery onto the East Coast. There was an agrarian uh, society here in California. They had discovered early on that uh, uh, there were growers. There were great products and and, and, uh, vineyards and orchards and things, and they needed cheap labor in order to get it it done. Uh, We became aware of that same culture at the gravesite when Father Jerry was talking about one of the Episcopal priests that had come into the area had an indentured uh, uh, domestic worker of course, we now know this today as uh, as uh, uh, another form of slavery in the time in uh, uh, in this contemporary period. But it, there was the culture was here. Uh, they needed cheap labor, and that there was no indictment of this Episcopal priest. He was an opportunist, as these other individuals were opportunists to further their business. And so where that need was is that slavery very much uh, fulfilled that. And I heard you and and Jean talking about uh, other cultures that had come into the area. Once the emancipation had really taken into effect, uh, the followers of that were Native Americans, were Chinese, were uh, uh, Mexican Americans. Uh, There was Uh, many folk to fill that slot. And, of course, as our family came out after World War II, those of us who had my father was a sharecropper, so working in the orchards here in Silicon Valley was just a natural thing for them to do. So there's always been a need for cheap labor, and I think that perpetuated and bought initially slaves into California from my perspective. Yes, thank you for that clarification. Uh, very interesting here that we've got going on here on the guest stream this evening. And um, Professor Levy is available. Uh, just a minute. Okay. That's me. We've we had one of our phones isn't working, so we're we are uh, we are doing musical chairs. I see. Uh, okay. Wanted to talk a little, here. a little bit. Uh, about the book? Well, uh, that 
um, the uh, Herbert Ruffin book. Yes. And following that, could you tell us about your website, Allies for Freedom? Yes. Well, Herbert Ruffin's book is uh, very uh, a traditional, academic, uh, well-documented and, and researched uh, book about uh, history of African Americans in uh, uh, he, everybody calls it Silicon Valley, but I'm older, and so I call it Santa Clara County. I'm also familiar with <laughs> with the orchards and 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 things as as uh, as Lovey has has talked about. So uh, he goes into you know periods of time. Does it as a traditional historian? He is a an associate professor there at, at Syracuse University, and so. Uh, uh that's his book was just published last year and it's available you know the in in the usual places and it's also uh it's when you can look at it online you know you can look at a lot of the pages where they have you know on Amazon you can open it up okay. and so that's yeah that that's that's something that that can be done um my my website allies for freedom it comes from the organization that was made to publish uh, John Brown Mysteries, which is in 1999, a group of us who were uh, studying African Americans involved with John Brown in the area of Harper's Ferry, published a, a little compilation and uh, with uh, photographs and, and essays and maps and and all of this about talking about, uh, particularly about African Americans with with John Brown, and that got me started in uh, doing uh, the photographs, the chronology of photographs, the history of photography, and that technology with daguerreotypes. And so I started the website. Uh, and to kind of keep going with the research and what people published and to talk about various organizations. Everything is just volunteer and, and nonprofit. And then uh, in 2009, I published the chronology of the photographs of John Brown. And that was something that I was driven to do. I would research wherever I was going around and began to do it methodically, including having a forensic examination that was contributed uh, by uh, an anthropologist at Louisiana State University who specialized in making models of missing children. And so uh, after publishing that, uh, I've been continuing to work with the material and finding out how many mistakes I made. And, uh, you know, once you do something like that, then the first thing you find out is what's wrong and what's not discovered. There's so much more to be discovered and has been discovered. And so I've just received a grant from the Lucy Foundation in Los Angeles to have a campaign for crowdfunding my putting this research together about the John Brown photographs into uh, uh, supplementary pages for my catalog or new panels uh, for the exhibition that goes around to various museums. And the African American Museum and Library at Oakland in California uh, is going to publish the chronology online on their, their website. Okay, have you come across any descendants of John Brown? Oh, yes. They came to Santa Clara County. Okay, are they That's, still in that? He has descendants still in that area? Yes, and there's uh, there's also one in particular who's in Texas. She was born here, but she's in Texas now, and she is also doing a lot of research on the family, and I've been... Um, I found them in 1976 when I interviewed one of the descendants, and I asked if I could take photographs of the children, <clears throat> and this now continued on, and so those children have grown. She was 16 then, and now she's 50, and we're still, uh, you know, we're 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 still 
doing things together and uh, and researching together and, and helping each other. Okay. Have you co-authored any books or have they written any books on their own, The Descendants? Uh, no, but I think that Alice McCoy will, and I'm, I'm certainly going to help her with that. Uh, she's done articles. She does good lectures and things. She has she's done the genealogy, and I believe uh, I know there's a book in her, and and she will do it. But she's only fifty now. Hey, you know mm-hmm. that's <laughs> right. Yeah. So she's 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 got a ways to go, but I think she'll uh, I I think she'll do a very good one, and it'll be uh, her own. Now, I think we've talked about a number of people, but I don't know if we talked about Jacob and Sarah Overton. Ah, uh, yes. Who can yeah, talk to yes. us about uh, Jacob and Sarah Overton? Yes. And that for them, uh, they I would also like to refer you to uh, to Father Jerry, because that's where I met uh, them, but also I brought something new into uh, the equation, when I went to Trinity Church and first started going there, it's because I was looking for the granddaughter of John Brown who got married at Trinity Church. Uh, and so when I was looking for uh, for her and, and looking for those records is when uh, I became aware of Jacob and Sarah Overton and and their history. So if I can pass the uh, the baton to you, Father Jerry. Fine, thank you. Great. Thank you, Dean. Um, yes, um, Jacob Overton had um, come um, as a um, child, um, really, uh, of a, a medical doctor to Sacramento and um had um i believe was still considered bound although the the doctor considered him really a son and um when he finally came to San Jose he met um the Cassies and he was very much instrumental in the development of uh St. Philip's mission and school and he and and Peter were um, really cohorts in the the leadership of the black community here. Uh, Sarah was a student at um, St. Philip's and uh, boarded there, and that's where she and Jacob met. And um, Sarah, once she had um finished her formal schooling she became one of the the great advocates traveling throughout um California raising funds for the school uh, promoting the school in um in black communities um throughout the state um in Los Angeles most people don't realize that a quarter of all the founding uh, members of Los Angeles were of African descent. Um, and so there was a large uh, community of both uh, bonded um, um, African Americans and free African Americans in Southern California. And so she was instrumental in, in uh, bringing that forward. Uh, when the school closed and uh, um, Anna had died in 1875 and her mother three years later, <clears throat> and it's their graves that are here in San Jose. Peter is buried in Florida. Um, the Overtons remained in um, in California until their death um, in uh, the teens. And um, Jacob was um, well known uh, as a caterer and uh, very very prominent in the community. In fact, it was said that no no significant uh, public event would go on without uh, Overton uh, catering it. So Jean's got more information about that, but let me turn it back to her. Oh yes, he's <clears throat> he is in uh, he is just wonderful. Um, 
he was catering events for the California Society of Pioneers, the Sons of Pioneers. And this is the richest of the rich and the bluest of the blood. And he decided, hey, I'm a pioneer too. And he joined because they said, well, yes, you fulfill all the qualifications. Uh, And so he joined the California Sons of Pioneers, which is not something many African Americans did, maybe not even any, except for him. Uh, When uh, Edmonia Lewis, uh, the sculptor, came to San Jose in 1872, uh, he uh, persuaded uh, a benefactor, a very wealthy white woman, uh, who was also very much involved in women's suffrage and uh, supported racial equality, he persuaded this woman to buy sculptors from Edmonia Lewis, uh, including a bust of John Brown, which she gave to him, and he said was his most prized possession. Now, the rest that bust is no longer uh, known where it is, but the rest of the sculptures that this woman brought, bought are at the San Jose Public Library. They're in the California room, and there's a whole display about the, the artist Edmonia Lewis and uh, in, in the San Jose Library where there are three of her, three of her statues, including a, a, a bust of Lincoln. And the only other two busts of John Brown that are known, one is in the lobby of the library at Harvard, and the other is in the uh, Smithsonian Institution. Okay, great. This has been a great, great evening here on the Gist of Freedom. Uh, We're running up out of time here, uh, but surely we can get back together uh, at some other time. Um, My guests have been Professor Jean Libby, Lovey Spencer, and Reverend Jerry Drino. And uh, we already have contact information for you, Professor, at Allies for Freedom, your website. Is there any other contact information our listeners uh, can contact you? Uh, let's see. My my email is, uh, you can try uh, jalibby at pacbell.net. Pacbell, okay. Yeah, Pacbell, P-A-C-B-E-L-L dot net. Okay. And uh, uh, I'd also like, uh, if uh, if uh, my guests here would like to have an, an email contact, can we, can we send those to you so that oh, wow. uh, so they, they can, they can be? They can give them on the air right now. Or come okay. on the all right, all right. Or, so you can give so. your email. So my this is uh, Father Drino. My uh, is J D, as in David R I N O at Hope with South Sudan dot org. I work with Sudanese, the Lost Boys of Sudan. Okay, that is J D R I N O, Hope with Sudan at at Hope with South Sudan at Hope at South Sudan. Right. Dot org. Right. Or okay. Okay, and here is uh, Lovey. Lovey Spencer, yes. My email address is Lovey L O V I E, like our coach Lovey Smith, uh, at Sonic dot net. That's L O V I E at Sonic S O N I C dot net. And it's Spencer, S-P-E-N-C-E-R. Okay. So that's Lovey Spencer at Sonic.net. No, just Lovey at Sonic.net. Lovey but at my Sonic. Phone. Okay, great. Great. This is, uh, I wanted to remind you guys also that this program is available uh, for free. Uh, and can be heard again at www.blackhistory.com. Uh, and it's available for free on iTunes, so you can pass that on to uh, family and friends. Uh, this is going to be a very informative program, I think, for them. Everything you need to know about black folks in California back in the day, <laughs> we could call it. Uh, man, you, you certainly... Um, 
certainly taught me a lot this evening about that African American history in the state of California. Any last comments? We got about one minute. I just think that finding teachable moments uh, is really important because if our history teachers have not done that, especially to young black students, uh, that it's important that we we do this truth finding and let it known and that we won't have the instances that you and I had to learn something new about the number of slaves here in California. But uh, finding teachable moments in this recording, we certainly hope will be used that well. And when we walk this resolution through our general convention, uh, we will also find other moments. And we appreciate your allowing us uh, this time uh, to get this message across. Thank you so much. Thank you yes. so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Great. Well, we're out of time. I appreciate you again taking your time out of your busy schedule uh, oh. to be with us here on the Gift of Freedom. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank, okay. thank you. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night. So you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another uh, program from the Gift of Freedom. Um, my guests were Professor Jeannie Libby, Lovey Spencer, and Reverend Jerry Drino talking to us about early African-American history in California, the Silicon Valley, San Jose, et cetera, San Francisco area. This show is available for free on iTunes at www.blackhistory.com. I've been your host, Professor Washington. Thank you again for being with us. Good night.